When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. And I think we should lose this paragraph on page 46. It's unnecessary and confusing. Now, have you read the last chapter yet? God, no. God, neither have I. Ah, he never ends a book well anyway. Cut, Cut the last chapter! <laughs> now, what about this jacket? Welcome to Right Lane, a podcast of the Tampa Bay Times. Each week, Times reporter Lane DeGregory discusses her stories and answers your questions. The focus is on craft. My name is Maria Carrillo, and I'm the Enterprise Editor at the Times. Today's topic, Coaching Your Editor, Part 2. Last week, we started a conversation about what reporters need from editors. Lane has some thoughts. If you missed it, we discussed six things. Uh, Are these pointers? Headlines? Tips. 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 Um, They were don't laugh, run interference for me, look into my eyes, meaning push them to write a personal essay if that's the best story, make me wait, the better story sometimes comes later, Size matters. That's not what what you think it is. It's about focusing the effort and get me out of here. So push them. So on this podcast, we have eight more things to think about. If you're uh, an editor trying to figure out how to do a better job at coaching your reporters, and and again, if you're a reporter who's listening to some of this and uh, you want to nudge your editor to listen. um, So Lane says editors should see for themselves. And you mean? Come along with me. If I can't, sometimes if I can't convince an editor that I have a story or that the story that I think I have is worth pursuing, I would love for them to come with me and and be in that place or meet that person or just kind of immerse them in the moment that I that makes me want to do the story. And I think sometimes if you can convince them they should come along, it becomes a really fun little field trip. <laughs> Which leads us to uh, egrets in a cesspool. And you're probably thinking, why would that lead us to egrets in a cesspool? But um, go ahead, back to you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we had this this thing in Virginia at the Virginian Pilot that we did called the Sunday Spotlight. And it was like a little short story, a moment, kind of like what we do here with Encounters. It's like a a very small, like less than a thousand words, usually something meaningful or or feel good in some way to kind of counteract the crappiness of the daily news. And... I lived in this um, old farmhouse that across from the place that became the Ford production plant in Norfolk, Virginia at the time, Chesapeake, Virginia. And on my way to work, I would go over this bridge by the Ford plant where they dumped out all the crap into these little ponds, like I guess little retaining ponds around the factory. And it was smelly and disgusting, and my husband was sure that the whole place was poisoned. Um, and then, But every day on the way to work, and I'd look at this ugly, crappy you know, Ford factory, there'd be these beautiful egrets like preening themselves in this little cesspool of like black juice pond. And so I wanted to write about, you know, how finding beauty in this really ugly uh, tableau. And so I was trying to convince Maria, who's my editor then, that you need to let me write about egrets in the cesspond. And she's like, yeah, I'm not feeling it. And I was like, well, come on, it's a five minute drive, get in my car. And I think we went and got lunch and sat and watched the egrets in the cesspool for a minute or two, and then I wrote a little story about it. Um, I should say, so, yeah, we've talked about this before, but so Lane and I worked together originally uh, 20 20 years ago, and um, 
she was part of a narrative team. We called it a storytelling team at first, but evolved into calling it a narrative team. And um, this Sunday Spotlight was one of our assignments. So the trade-off for us having a great job and a great like opportunity to just tell whatever stories we wanted to tell was that we had to turn over this one Sunday feature a week um, as, as kind of our standing thing. And it, and it did have to be short, well-crafted, and uplifting. So we didn't want it to be, you know, old people or, you know, somebody overcoming a disability. We didn't want it to be like the sort of cliche kind of subject. So we were pushing ourselves to find interesting topics. And, um, and of course, Lane finds something that, you know, uh, otherwise, I don't think, I mean, it's not the, it, it, the format sort of inspired us to, to go hunting for these kind of things. So this, this worked pretty well. And shout out once again to Jenkin Hayes from the Virginian pilot, who's a researcher there. And he tracked down this story for us, which I was happy to learn that it kind of, it held up pretty well, all things considered. So, so Lane's going to read a little snatch uh, from the egrets in the cesspool. Well, we should be honest, right? Like some people weren't sure they got this story, right? Like, yes, that's true. <laughs> there was a little blowback about. Not, not everybody loved this story. <laughs> Okay, the story was called Along a Junkyard Creek. Still, the egrets keep coming. They're a gorgeous sight. Great egrets have gold beaks, thin, graceful necks, and wide wings. They stand about three feet tall. Part of the heron family, they were once hunted for their snowy plumes. Now they're plentiful, especially around marshes, ponds, and tidal flats. They're drawn to water, and they feed in large groups where frogs and insects and fish abound, said Karen Beatty of Wild Birds Unlimited in Virginia Beach. I bet that debris out there is acting as a fish breeding habitat, you know, attracting little bait fish, Beatty said. That would be very attractive to the birds. Maybe they just don't have the same eye for beauty as we do. Um, you know, we should say that, because you were talking about don't laugh, too. I, I think part of the, I think if you can say to yourself that it's okay to take chances, and if the story doesn't come out perfectly, or, it, you know, I mean, we actually got a lot of attention sometimes on the spotlight for something that wasn't, a, a typical story and people just didn't think it worked quite so well but on the other hand it's like boy you know you, you put out a paper 365 days a year and you do how many thousands of online posts um, something doesn't work is it really that big a deal I mean there's a plenty of things that don't work that nobody even pays any attention to because they're they're not an unusual topic or um, so I think having the sort of setting yourself free to not being so worried about whether it works or not. I mean, I think at that point, we were really trying a lot of stuff just to see. Right. And I mean, even if it all of it does is make somebody see the world in a different way on their way to work, that's payoff, right? Yeah. And well, you know, Lane, only Lane would come in and say, I saw egrets in a cesspool. <laughs> I think that's a good topic. <laughs> Let's go for it. Um, but I had an editor willing to take a chance with me. That's true. So. That's true. It didn't smell good, by the way. <laughs> um, one of your uh, pointers, uh, buy a couch. Yeah, I think I mentioned this in the last session, but I really feel like editors, a big part of their job that they don't get paid for is being therapists to the crazy, <laughs> needy reporters below them. Um, and so I was always teasing Mike about, like, you need a couch, because sometimes I just need to lie down there and flop and say, and, like, spit up all the icky stuff that I've been dealing with or all the... Uh, hesitations I have or the worries I have or whether sometimes it's my life you know I gotta let this out that like I got all these things going on in my life so I'm distracted right now or sometimes it's the story like I'm not sure about this or I don't trust this person or I'm really worried I'm not getting this right so that I can kind of like dump all of my insecurities onto my editor and free myself up to start writing 
And I, I told Lane when I when I saw this pointer, I, I thought of it as um, I do think a lot of times you've got to let people talk about something personal that's going on that they're dealing with so they can get back to work. And uh, a fellow I used to work with at the pilot, Bill Henry, who's a senior editor there still, Bill used to call it the cat theory. And the cat theory was that sometimes somebody that works for you needs to come in and spend 10 minutes talking about their cat because they're just obsessed with whatever problem the cat is having. And as soon as you listen to the cat thing, then they'll get back to work. But if you don't listen to the cat thing, then they're gonna, it's going to distract them the whole rest of the day. So to me, that was <laughs> the, the couch thing is like, yes, people are, they need to talk sometimes about some stuff that has nothing at all to do with work. Um, and nicely here at the Tampa Bay Times, my office came with a couch. So I apparently they I knew you sure. well. <laughs> I made sure you had a couch. <laughs> so uh, to talk about the Dakota story. So that was one we were talking about in terms of obviously that was a that was an emotional moment for you at time. Yeah, this actually kind of harkens back to some of our topics. So, so this is like looking to my eyes, like right. convincing me to write a first person about something, making me wait. Um, so my dog had died, and Tom French actually was my editor at this time, and I was I couldn't stop talking about my dead dog and. Tom didn't have a dog, and he was very kind about listening to my dead dog, and he said, you need to write about this, don't you? And I was like, I probably, I do need to write about this. You know, I need to put some closure on this, and usually the way I do that is to write about it. He said, well, don't write about it now. You're not ready. So he made me wait like three or four months before I wrote the story. Um, and then we probably had the only time in my life I've ever really yelled, yelled, yelled at an editor. I yelled at poor Tom, who took it and was so kind about the whole thing, and it became this like very uh, emotionally charged edit for the story because I had two dogs and only one of them had died and I wanted to put the other dog in the story too and Tom was like no we need to focus on the dead dog and I was like but you killed my other dog too you can't kill my other dog too and so we went back and forth about this and I remember yelling at him like you don't even have a dog how can you understand you know so poor Tom who you know he was my friend as well as my editor was just like so kind and patient with me through the edit of this story, but I think it made him not want to be an editor anymore. <laughs> um, so this is this is, and the, that's how Tom French went back to writing. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Tom, for not writing me off your friend list. Um, this story was called "Letting Go of Dakota." My old dog's head was heavy in my lap. I rubbed her white muzzle, listened to her labored breathing. It's okay, Dakota. I kept telling her. She was fourteen. For months, she'd been hurting. Tumors bulged from her belly. Her legs were so stiff she needed help just to stand. Most of her teeth were gone. And the night before, she'd collapsed. Now she could barely lift her head. That's why we were here, in the parking lot of the vet's office, sitting on the floor of our ancient VW camper. I'd spread Dakota's favorite blanket beneath us. It smelled like beach and dirt and dog. Since she weighed almost 90 pounds and couldn't get up, my husband, Dan, had gone to ask the vet to come outside. Both our boys were at school, thank goodness. So I waited, cradling my dog. It's okay, I told her again. It's going to be okay. If I said it enough times, maybe it would be true. I'm such a mean editor making her read that. <laughs> <laughs> it was, I, 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 I'm surprised that was months later, but I'm, it makes sense to, to put some distance between it because... It's, uh, yeah. it's emotional now. I mean, I read it again this week, and it was like, oh, my God. I know. It's been years, and I'm still tearing up thinking about it. But it got that story got so much attention because so many people, it resonated. You right. know, anybody who'd ever lost a dog was writing it about that story. Right. 
and it did help me. It helped I was, me. I was going to say it did, right? And it helped you to kind of not, move on, get some closure. Absolutely. And figure out what it meant, you know? It, it was because there was also a point in, mm-hmm. at, at the end when we told our boys what we had done. My older son got really, really, really angry with us. And, like, how could you have killed her? And it was this whole talking this through with the boys about what that meant to love something enough to let him go, you know? Right. Um, you say no notes. Yeah, that was maybe one of the best things that an editor ever did for me. So I was writing um, news stories, like two or three stories a day in this little bureau in the Outer Banks. And when I would come back and be really excited about more of a feature story or a story I'd spent actually two days on instead of two hours on, you know, I had an editor named Ron Spear who was this big old crusty guy who looked like Wilford Brimley. And he would say, like, all right, give me your notes. And I would get really nervous. Like, is he going to realize my handwriting sucks and I don't take very good notes? Like, what did he want to analyze my notes? And he would just take them all and he wouldn't even look at them and he'd stick them in the bottom drawer of his desk and he'd go, now tell me your story. And so it was this, I think that totally to me was the turning point of becoming, going from being a reporter to being a writer and allowing myself to write the story from what I knew, from what I remembered, from what I felt, from how I wanted to tell it as a story, instead of just copying together my notes and stringing together other people's quotes, you know. I mean, I feel like we all, going through your notepads is like a wonderful, perfect way to procrastinate, right? You keep flipping pages, you keep looking for the perfect quote, you're moving things around and you're not writing. But when you put your notes away or someone especially takes them away from you and you have to sit down and tell the story, his point was like, you know the story, you've lived this story, you might not remember the greatest, the perfect quotes, you might not remember whether they were wearing a green shirt or a blue shirt, but write the story and then leave those blank places in brackets, you know, write, make stuff up if you have to fill it in, but then write it in brackets so you can go back through your notes and fill in the real quote or the real color of the shirt or whatever it is. And that was a giant gift to me. Do you still do that sometimes? I do do that. Yeah. I do that all the time. I usually end up reading through all my notes um, and then taking notes on my notes, and that, but then I write it with only that one little page of like prompts, not with my all my legal pads which is a great way to do it because then you get it's all fresh in your head but you're not drowning in it because exactly. you're right I do think people drown in their notes sometimes and they're and they're looking for the story in the middle of the notebook and, and it's not there yeah it's got to be in your head or your heart before you start you know did Ron wear suspenders or is that just in my head he, that he wore suspenders, suspenders and he always wore his lunch on his on his shirt exactly he had like a big belly so yeah. you could come back and be like oh did you have spaghetti for lunch today like he was the greatest he really did look like Wilford Brimley he looked exactly totally like did. Wilford and the hair Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Was, yeah. Um, anyway, he was a great he's a great editor. I could see him being a terrific editor for young reporters because, you know, he just sort of empowered you. He did, and he he'd not been a reporter himself at the beginning he'd gone to world war ii and he was the only guy who could right. type and so they made him like write the newsletter thing but so he had very very humble beginnings and he understood what it was like to sort of struggle you know and not not to feel like i'm the world's greatest writer going into this you know right. um no that's i he was he was a character um I, I was i keep thinking that you know here we are we're talking about 
pointers for editors. And I just want to keep reminding people that, you know, reporters get better over time. Editors can get better over time, too. We are all, it's part of a process. And, um, you know, I know, and I'm sure a lot of editors came into it without any guidance whatsoever. You know, you're you're a reporter on a Friday, you're an editor on a, on a Monday, and they say, good luck, and off you go. And, and, you know, different skill sets and different things that you have to learn to do. So take a lot of what Lane's saying to heart and think about the way that you work and, and the things that you're doing. A lot of this that you're saying are not things that, about your hands and, and, and line ex- editing. They're, they're things about how to coach a, a reporter to a successful story, right? And build that relationship. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I feel like, um, you know, a, a, a lot of reporters complain about their editors. And I want to say, you can train them. You know, you can help them right. by letting them know what you need. Like, I don't need the same things that my coworkers need necessarily, you know. Or they may be things that they need that, I that you know, I've already got this, but I'm afraid about this. So I think it's, it's you have to be able to tell your, your editor what you need, right. you know. Well, it goes back to, it is a relationship. It's a relationship like any other relationship you have in your life. And you have to, and what makes a successful relationship is trust. And communication. Right. So, if you, and you got to get to that place. You got to get to that place where you feel like you can talk back and forth about what's getting in the way of success or what, what do you need or what are you trying to accomplish and, and understand what, you know, what you, I want to understand when we're working together, what you're going for, what it is that you're trying to get out of this particular story, what it is you're trying to get out of your career, what you want to do next, all those things. I think that that helps me to coach you. So, and I think a lot of young reporters don't want to say to their editor, like, I I don't think I got this paragraph right, or I don't think I have what I need for this character. I'm really worried that this doesn't come across right. But if you can communicate with that, with your editor, it's so, it's not, they're not going to look down on you or judge you for that. They're going to want to help you. And it's incredibly freeing as a reporter to be able to say, here's what I think I have wrong, or here's what I think I I don't know what I'm doing here, you know? Well, and you, I mean, that's to me, that's like you're helping, you're helping the editor do their job. You're saying, look, here's the places where I feel like it's working, and here's the places where I'm, I'm not feeling like Something's it's working. missing. Yeah. yeah. Um, you say, pick my brain. Yeah, I think um, my favorite part of the editor writer relationship is when you've done most of your reporting and you come back and you hang up this conversation before you start writing. Um, and a lot of times, the best stuff comes out of the editor asking me, well, okay, at this moment, like, what were you thinking or what were you feeling? And it's going beyond what I was observing or what I was reporting, but, like, what was your emotional connection or what was your 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 intellectual disconnect with this or whatever it is? Um, and being able to have those conversations. Maria is amazing about taking notes while I'm talking to her. So if I'm telling her about a story and she's thinking it through with me, she'll be writing down things that, that I'm saying that I might even remember I said so that when I sit down to write the story, I've got her notes on my conversation, which is a huge gift to have, you know. Um, it, a lot of times it's easier to talk through a story than it is to start to write it. So if you can talk through it and have something written down before you actually start to craft the story, oh, it's a huge gift. Well, and, and also at that point that you're not, you're walking in and we're not locked into anything. At that moment, you're just you're just sharing what you came back with. And then I feel like I'm listening for what you're most excited about, where I think, you know, I see, I hear a theme or I hear the one word, what it is that we keep hitting on or, and, and yeah, then I think it helps to, again, we're trying to get on the same page. And I think it's always so much better when you have the same page before you start to write. So 
when I know what you're going to give me, and then it's and then it's just polishing and trying to make it stronger. But I but I know exactly where you're going to go with the story because we've had that conversation already. Well, and you you pushed me really hard to go. Okay, where is it going to start? Where are we yeah. going to start? And so before I even start to write, I know where I'm going to start, and you know where I'm going to start, and that's. You know, I, I know you guys probably feel the same way. That's like 80% of the battle. Like, where the hell do I start the story, you know? And where we're going to end. we got to know where we we're going to end. Yeah. And, and where's the turning point, you know? Right. Like, not necessarily the nut graph, but where's the part that you want the readers to go, okay, I can't stop reading, right. you know? You say, be willing to punt. Yeah, this doesn't happen to me very often. And I guess I could change this to say, be willing to take a turn, you know, also. I think maybe that's even more important. Like, if you think the story is something and then it takes a turn, be willing to go with it. You know, not force me back to what the budget line was or what we pitched at the morning meeting, you know. Mm -hmm. But also, if a story just completely explodes or doesn't work or you find out something untoward about the person you're writing about, then be willing to not push me to finish the story, but go, okay, you know what, let's... I think in... In the 18 years I've been here, we've only punted three stories. So that's a pretty good ratio. But so it's more turning. It's more letting the story letting go, it take go a with turn. it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, or be willing to, to say, okay, it's not about this, but here's this side piece that could be about that, you know. I had a very brief uh, tenure in my career where I was quoting, uh, I was sounding a lot like Yogi Berra. And I remember one story when somebody was trying to punt, and I agreed, and I said, no point in doing something pointless. Um, so, yes, that's, you know, if it's not there, it's not there, you know, right. move on. Uh, you say, send me walking. Yeah, that's kind of the piece I think that a lot of editors don't value is that time to think before you write, you know. I mean, and you can't always do that on a news deadline, like oh, you come back from a fire or a city council meeting, you got to get the story in because the deadline's coming up. But if it's a story that doesn't have, even if it's a story that has a deadline, you know, if you take five minutes, ten minutes to take a walk um, and think about what you're doing, a lot of times things start to congeal a whole lot more easily than if you just jump right in front of a blank screen, you know. Mike used to tell me to go get a Diet Coke. Go get out of here and get a Diet Coke, you know. Like, yeah. get a different scene, engage your body, but let your mind just concentrate on the story for a minute. And then, I mean, it's exponential. The, the more time you can spend thinking about it, the quicker you're going to be able to write it. Right. I think people don't always... Don't always put those two together. Uh, you say, show your strokes. Yeah, I've had editors, especially when I was a young person, who would just take my copy and then fix it and put it in the paper. And that is no way to learn anything. And I know a lot of that, too, is time crunch. You don't always have time to, to sit with the person and hold their hand and go, here's why I moved this paragraph, and here's why this analogy didn't work or whatever it is. But especially, like, I love working in Google Docs now where we can like see exactly what each other did and why and make make little notes on the side and it's so transparent and especially for young reporters it's so helpful if you can show them why you changed things not just how you changed things so that they can learn from the next time um, not to do that or to do that. I think too from an editor's perspective I think a lot of times um, Editors struggle to do that. Something doesn't make sense to them, so they just cut it out um, without thinking it through. You know, why is it that this isn't working for me? And I think if you're an editor and you could actually verbalize it, you know, and if it doesn't work, send it back. Let them play with it. Uh, but I think that's part of the struggle is learning to to verbalize what it is that's getting in your way, what it is that's tripping you up about something in a story. And I think that takes a while to get to get to that place. And and it takes honesty, too. I think, yeah. some, you know, some editors don't care if they hurt your feelings, but some editors are so concerned about hurting your feelings, they don't articulate that, like, this part really sucked, right. <laughs> you know? 
Which again, though, goes back to, to trust. Because if you know I have your back and you know that my, I, you know, I want you to succeed, I want you to do the best story possible, then you know if I'm, there's something tripping me up in the story. It's not personal. I'm trying to make it the best story I can. And you're not getting your back up because, you know, somebody's stumbling over something. You want to smooth it out. You want it to be better. And I think there's some reporters who really like the help of like, this isn't working, let's try this, right. versus some reporters who just want to go, this isn't working, try something else. You know, like I, I like a little bit of guidance about maybe we should think about this, that, or the other, but I know my, some of my friends who just like, okay, let me go back and try to fix it myself, right. you know. You say, save me from myself. We've had a little bit of that in this uh I guess we covered some of that, but save me for myself. Yeah, no, that goes back to exactly what you just said. Like, you, I want my editor to be my safety net. I know you're not going to let me publish something that's crap. And that's a huge gift to have. And when I told, when you were coming here to the Times, that's what I told all the other reporters who at the paper. Like, Maria will never, ever let you fail, you know? And I think that's a huge... No pressure. I think that's a huge <laughs> jolt of confidence for reporters because then we know we can try something or, or we can you know, go a different direction. And, and But if it's bad, if it's wrong, you're not going to let it go through, you know. I think especially when you have a reporter who you, I mean, an editor who you don't like, it's hard to remember that your work reflects on them too. There is not an editor out there, no matter how crappy they are, that doesn't want you to succeed because it's a reflection on them, you know. So the people who think like, oh, my editor's just trying to put me down or oh, my editor's just like, you know, not making this work for me, it's not ever true. It's like maybe you weren't jiving on somewhere, but that editor wants you to succeed because it's a reflection on them, even if they don't like you, you know. Right. right. I look at a pointer like that, save me for myself, and I think that you, you got to get reporters to get out of their own heads sometimes and understand what insecurities they have, understand what it is that's getting in their own way in terms of being successful or what they're worried about, you know, um, like we were just talking about about a particular story. But I think it also helps to know what they're worried about in terms of their career, in terms of, yeah, yeah something going on at home. Relationships, <laughs> yeah. yeah. What, is it that, what is it that's distracting you in that moment or, you know, or, and what are you trying to do? What are you trying to, what do you aspire to do? It helps to know sort of what what's going on. I know Mike always said his hardest job was unhallmarking me. Um, <laughs> that I was I write sappy and emotively, and and he had to take he had to go take that back. You know he he had yeah. to rein that in on me. But it also gave me the permission then like. I can give him a lot of that because he's not going to let me overdo it. Right. You know, and so if I'm feeling super saccharine and hallmarky, I'm just going to spill it out there because Mike's going to take it out, you know, and, and that was a big gift to know that he was going to save me from that sort of overdramatic stuff. All right. One last one, um, which I think we've probably said a few times here, but we'll keep repeating a lot. Read out loud. Yeah, that's a that's a huge gift. Um to be able to hear your story back, whether it is your editor who reads it, especially that's the most important, but if they don't have time to find somebody else that'll read it to you. I used to make my son Tucker read my stories to me all the time. Um, just to hear it in somebody else's voice where you can listen to it as um, an audience, not a participant, you know, and you, you find out words that you, you overuse or you trip up on or phrases that are too long or clunky or where the syntax doesn't make sense in the rhythm of it, you can hear it so much better if someone reads it out loud to you. I mean, I've had some of my journalism students have said, at least, if nothing else, read it out loud to yourself and record it so you can listen back on your phone, on your iPhone or whatever. If that's the, that's like the last 
resort, you know, don't just read it out loud and listen to yourself because you don't catch it the same way, but record it and play it back to yourself. You can hear all kind of different things. I think it's helpful if there's time to do both. I mean, like you're listening, you know, I don't know, you know, reading out loud after you've written a piece of any piece and you're listening to what you've done and hearing the clunkiness. But then I like to read your stories for you because you've written things with a certain emphasis you know where it is. You know what you're trying to get at. But if I don't read it that way, then maybe it's not working. And I, right. or, or you know, I, I'm I'm taking it and I'm coming at it cold, and I I want to see how how it's going to sound to me, and and that way together too. I think we hear the, I hear we hear where it's bumpy, where oh, where you meant something or you wanted some emphasis that didn't come across in the way I read it. So you know, how do we get there? Or oh my God, every single paragraph started with a clause and right. then another clause and then another clause, right. and you don't if you're just reading it, you don't always feel it the same way. And I think for editors who, um, I I started reading out loud the minute I became an editor, and I did it even when I was on deadline as a news editor. Um, because I found that it was a it was a quick way to make the story better. I mean, you're going over it anyway, and you know, come sit, let's go, and we'll read right through it, and and we'll find things, and it and it helps us. So don't use time as an excuse because you still have to read it. Right, <laughs> it's immensely helpful to hear it. Yeah. yeah. All right. So if you have a question for Lane about uh, your editor and what you should do, um, or you want to ask her anything else, email to writelane at tampabay.com. That's W-R-I-T-E-L-A-N-E at tampabay.com. Join us next week on Wednesday morning for the next episode. This podcast was produced by Denise Keenan. Music was composed and performed by Dan DeGregory. Thanks for listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.